Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's a pleasure to welcome you to today's Beeson Podcast. I have an interview today with a person who's been a friend for a long time, an honored alumnus of Beeson Divinity School, a wonderful scholar and pastor. You know, we like to produce students who are both pastors and scholars, who take the work of the Lord in the church seriously and who are devoted to the academic study that is our calling as pastors and teachers of God's Word. His name is Dr. John Paul Lotz. John Paul, welcome back to Beeson and to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Glad to have you back. Now, I want to begin, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to us. Uh, how did you get to Beeson? What were some of your experiences here? And then I want to talk for just a moment about your church and what you're doing now. I came early on to Beeson. Uh, I remember when I first came here, taking a tour of the chapel, and uh, it was still being constructed and painted, so it was really exciting to kind of feel like um, I was stepping into something new. In one sense, as theologians, we dare not step into new things. Uh, we mm -hmm. like to keep it old, but uh, it was exciting to come here. And I came here from uh, from Regent College in Vancouver. Uh, I'd been up there studying, just really trying to explore my vocation. While I was in college at the University of Richmond, I kind of recommitted my life with a, with a group of uh, really close friends. And, uh, you know, like every young evangelical, you get a guitar and a sense of calling. So I went off to, to Vancouver to try to figure out what that was. My, uh, my mentor out there was Eugene Peterson. And then I got to know um, uh, some other greats out there. But I was in a bad car accident out there. Um, and that uh, really put me in the hospital for a while. And eventually I had to come back down to the States. And a door opened for me to come at Beeson. And it was really, it was kind of a beautiful return home to a place I'd never been. I also remember when you were here, you were uh, a soccer coach for the Sanford University for a while. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. It was one of my alter egos. In fact, <laughs> you know, as, as I look back, um, soccer had become very important for me because I, I was a missionary kid, grew up in Switzerland. And so as a third culture kid, I kind of always felt out of place, never knew who I really was. And I had sort of a, a good Baptisty faith growing up. My parents were, were good in that. But uh, in terms of my own identity, it was always, I was always fluid. And, and when I came to America, I was a, a 10-year-old. I spoke Swiss German and French and, uh, and English, you know, with a very uh, kind of book English accent and, and had a hard time adjusting as a kid. And so soccer was something that I gripped onto. And that was something that I was good at and I could do. But it became it became a fundamental part of my identity, which mm. was a problem. And so in a long roundabout way, some of these car accidents I've been through, which have kind of debilitated me physically, were one of the Lord's ways of kind of breaking me in the right yeah. direction. And you had one of those accidents when you were a student here at Beeson as well, and it was a pretty serious one. I did. It was. It was bad and um, didn't know if I was going to finish, but was able to. But, you know, one of the neat things, and again, this was also, I think, formative for my Christian experience. During that accident, I was surrounded by the community here mm -hmm. in a way that, again, deepened my faith, helped me to see I'm, I'm called not to this 
Lone Ranger pilgrimage with Jesus, but into a family, into a community. And that's become an important part of my, my own theological awareness since then. We're going to get to your academic work in just a minute, but I want to say another thing that you picked up uh, when you were in Birmingham was a wonderful wife. Yes. Susan, tell us about your wife and your family that God has given you. Yes, she was working on an MRS degree uh, in the <laughs> education department. And, uh, yeah, she, uh, you know, very, very different than I am in, in the sense that she, I, I don't think she ever left the zip code that she grew up in until she was 24. And uh, just a wonderful woman. And um, she has uh, been my partner on tour for the last uh, uh really 12 years as we've gone to England and, and Austria and now living on Cape Cod. So you finished Beeson and uh, married Susan, and then you went to, uh, you did a Ph.D. at Cambridge University. Yeah. Well, the chronology was, I actually, when I finished Beeson here, I stayed on for a year, and I did CPE oh, over that's right. at Baptist yeah. Health Again, that was a great thing to go through for many reasons. A lot of it I disagreed with, but much of it shaped my pastoral identity. I went off to Cambridge for a year, and, and Susan and I were, were long distance for a while. But um, but then we got married halfway through, and she joined me over there. That's where we started our life together. Yeah. And after the Ph.D., you remained in England, and you taught for a while at the London School of Theology and also served a church in England. I did, yeah. When, when I was in Cambridge, uh, I think as all Americans, uh, you explore Anglicanism. Because the, ba- the Baptists were okay, were, were okay there, but they were going through some crises uh, with, with some of the churches. And uh, that was actually, I think that fits into kind of the, the theological formation I, I started here at Beeson, because it's interdenominational. There was this, this sense of exploring other religious traditions, and I really got to imbibe that fully. When I, when I studied in Austria, I did the same thing mm-hmm. with uh, the Reformed and Catholic churches there. Just, and that, I think partly because I, I, I was developing a real interest in the antiquity and the liturgy of the ancient church. Again, probably a, a TCK, a, a third culture kid, looking for roots, looking for connectedness to something bigger than the fluidity around me. After your time in England, you were called to pastor, and that's what you're doing now. You're the senior pastor in Centerville, Massachusetts. That's on Cape Cod. Tell us a little bit about your church and ministry there. Christ Chapel was founded uh, 30 years ago, as a, again, as an interdenominational church. I kind of had my druthers about it because I am a Baptist. I'm an ordained uh, Southern Baptist minister. I try to keep that secret up in the Northeast, <laughs> but I do bring it out every once in a while to scare people. You know, I, I, I agree with the Baptist ecclesiology. I think it, uh, it very much fits our, our time in history. Uh, although there's some challenges to it now. As an interdenominational church, it's an attempt to blend sort of a reformed ecclesiology, congregational ecclesiology, and then there are a lot of sort of Catholics uh, who've become refugees in that community. Let me ask you the W question. How do you worship at your church? It's It's a struggle. We actually have two services. We have a traditional and a contemporary. Okay. But once a month for communion, we have a blended service. We bring, we bring them all together. We have one service, communion, then we have a potluck meal afterwards. So we really, we really struggle to, to maintain community. And, you know, we have, we have experimented, I'm sure, like a lot of churches to figure out the right logarithm. But uh, in, in our area, where we do have a lot of uh, traditional folks who retire to the Cape, and a lot of unchurched people who don't know the vocabulary of traditional Christianity. We are at a size where we can afford to have two services like that. So it's a little strange to think of a place so early settled in the history of our country as Massachusetts Bay, Colony, Cape Cod, 
as being a mission field, but in many ways it really is, isn't it? It very much is. You know, I think they're, they're real casualties of the non-Trinitarianism of the Unitarians a, a century and a half ago. That legacy is still very formidable there. But there was a large sort of Irish Catholic influx as well, as well as Portuguese Catholic. And that, that, that sort of split up the concept of a united commonwealth. There were, there were different sort of religious traditions coming in. But I think, again, the, the heavy hand of secularism over the last 60, 70 years mm. has done a lot to empty the churches of young people. So yeah. it is a mission field. Wow. Now, I want to focus a little bit on the academic work you have done uh, coming out of your Ph.D. at Cambridge University and continuing some writing you've done, mm. uh, particularly uh, as it relates to the apostolic fathers. Yes. You did your dissertation on Ignatius of Antioch, one of the great apostolic fathers of the early, early church. Tell us a little bit about these apostolic fathers, who they were, when they lived, why are they important to us today? Yeah, do you know, I, I actually stumbled into the apostolic fathers, as one might, looking for a New Testament thesis. The New Testament field is so packed and crowded that you're just down to... Uh, participles if you're going to find a dissertation topic. So I crept out of the New Testament, which is not too difficult when you look at John, you know, perhaps being in the early 2nd century, late 1st century, but uh, very quickly stumbled into the Apostolic Fathers. And they are uh, a a non-canonical group of writings that really um, uh, sort of dovetail on to the later part of the New Testament. And they really are the they're really the generation, I think, of Christians, perhaps about whom Jesus was thinking when he told Thomas, blessed are those who believe without having seen. This mm-hmm. is sort of that first generation of Christians like us who have faith in Jesus Christ without having actually seen him. Now, I want to talk about Ignatius of Antioch, but first let me just mention some of the other apostolic fathers that we consider. Maybe you can say just a word of introduction about some of them. Uh, one of the documents I always use when I teach church history is called the Didache, mm. uh, which is kind of a church manual of sorts. Tell us about the Didache, one of the early, early documents of uh, this period of time. It really is. It's an early document. It's kind of a, almost a blend of two documents. It has a, a uh, initial heavy uh, Jewish moralizing element to it. And then it gives some really, really early and interesting insights into the way that the church was the church. It was a period before you had bishops and elders and deacons, when you had wandering teachers and prophets Mm -hmm. that would go from place to place. Uh, Gives us some of our earliest references to to both baptism and uh, the Lord's table. And, And it has that flavor. It has that flavor of the early church, of the New Testament period. Uh, though not canonical at the same time. Many, when it was found uh, only a hundred and some odd years ago, uh, it was known to be an existing document, but it had been lost. And and, uh, it's kind of one of those tantalizing uh, documents of early Christianity like uh, perhaps the Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. What if it turns up in uh, in the sands of Egypt? Now, two other documents before we get to Ignatius. One is called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. Who was Polycarp? Polycarp was uh, an ancient bishop. He actually was a disciple of John. So he sat at the feet of John. And, uh, you know, this is a a, a brilliant link. When you think of Jesus uh, ascending, uh, leaving the earth bodily in, uh, in the early 30s, and you look at Polycarp, who Ignatius was writing to probably in the first decade of the second century. That's only about 80 years Removed, So there's some real proximity and there's some real inherited memory. 
Uh, I had a glimpse of this while I was pastoring a little while ago. Uh, one of our parishioners was an old 86-year-old uh, man. This was while I was in Virginia. And um, he would tell me about stories his grandfather would tell him about the Battle of Gettysburg. Ah. So his grandfather was at the Battle of Gettysburg. And so I was one person removed from all of those initial stories. Mm. And I think we're beginning to learn, academics are beginning to resource the importance of memory and, mm. and um, traditions that have been passed on. And that living memory from, from the time of Jesus and his disciples really does stretch into the middle of the second century, covering the area of the apostolic fathers. So they were breathing the air of a world in which the memories and the stories of Jesus and his, his disciples were really only a generation or two removed. And I think that makes them important. And the martyrdom of Polycarp in particular became kind of almost a devotional work for Christians to read the story of this great bishop of the church who gave his life for Christ in a gripping account of yeah. his being uh, cast into the arena and so forth. And well, almost it, it becomes sort of the, the, uh, the proto-martyrion. It's, it's the story that all other martyrdom stories kind of become modeled mm -hmm. on. And even his own martyrdom has elements of being modeled on uh, the death of Christ, the bearing witness of Christ. But here's Polycarp in his in his 86th year, professing before the Roman governor, uh, who is asking him to deny Christ. Why should I deny someone who's been faithful to me for all these many years? Yeah, wonderful story and uh, account of, of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Now, one more book before we get to Ignatius. This is a little unusual uh, genre of literature called the Shepherd of Hermas. Talk about that. Yes, it is. And it really, in one sense, it reflects kind of the atmosphere of the Didache. Uh, it's prophetic, visionary literature. It is, uh, it is very much uh, influenced by, by sort of the Greek Gentile church. Uh, when you read the, the Didache, the teaching of, of the apostles, you, you're still breathing the air of Jewish Christianity. As you move into the Shepherd of Hermas, there are lots of Jewish reminiscences, but there's also a lot of Greek uh, literature and uh, uh, and ideas that are beginning to creep in. But it, it's these uh, it's in three different sections where um, this uh, this prophet has these visions and mm -hmm. uh, these visions really about reforming the church. And again, you're you're in the third and the fourth generation. People have grown up, probably been baptized. Uh, uh, maybe even at young ages, although there's no, uh, there's no evidence for that, but needing to repent after baptism. And in one of Hermes's visions, there is this announcement of a, of a second repentance that comes after baptism. Mm -hmm. So I thought very important because, you know, in, in much of the Western church today, baptism happens either as, uh, as infant baptism in the liturgical traditions or, or as adult baptism, but even some Baptist churches, it's almost pedo-baptism. You know, it's sort of preteen baptism. And so what do you do if you're baptized and you sin? And so we don't necessarily take baptism that seriously anymore, where they did very much so. That's a good point. Now, I've danced all around Ignatius of Antioch, and I know you wrote your dissertation mm -hmm. on him. I think we'd have to say just from the sheer bulk of the writings that we have from this period, he's the most prominent, the most important of these early apostolic fathers. He was a bishop of Antioch. Tell us a little bit about Ignatius and his writings and why uh, he is important for us as Christians today to think about. Yeah, well, he is important. And again, he he died in the early second century. We don't know how old he was. There was this legend that his uh, his 
the second part of his name, uh, Ignatius Theophorus, uh, means one who was born by God or one who bears God, depending on how you translate the, uh, mm-hmm. the middle tense, that he was actually one of the children that Jesus held. That's late 3rd, 4th century legend. We don't know if that's true. But certainly his lifespan could have intersected with Jesus uh, early on. If, if you imagine him dying at, at 70 or 80 years old, he certainly could have intersected with Jesus. But we don't know much about him other than that he was a bishop. He uh, uh, appears in history in these seven letters that he writes, and then he disappears uh, without any real um, story behind him. But he was the third in line from Peter at Antioch. So there's one other between himself and Peter as the bishop of the church in Syria, which was probably at that time the largest Christian community. Yeah, Antioch is a city we don't think a lot about today in terms of it being a contemporary metropolitan area in Syria. We think of Damascus, but Antioch at the time of the early church was a very important urban uh, center for Roman culture and mixture of Jewish and Roman. And we read a little bit about it in the New Testament, of course. That's where Peter and Paul have their great uh, conflict. We read about in Galatians 2. But Ignatius becomes the spiritual leader of the Christians in the city of Antioch. That's right. And, you know, you could almost say that Antioch was the most important church of that time because Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans. The, uh, The Jewish Christians had been sort of exiled from there as well. John had taught in Ephesus. Peter and Paul had died in Rome, but they weren't around anymore. And it really means that Ignatius was in one sense the leader of the largest church uh, in the world at that time. And like his forebears, like the apostles who who ordained him, he also was a martyr. Now, these seven letters that he wrote that have been preserved, that we can still read today, were written to various churches, mostly in Asia Minor, right, on his way to Rome where he was martyred. That's right gives us a great insight into how important letter writing was in the ancient world and as a form of communicating the gospel. Uh, There are in those letters accounts of his actual interactions with some of those churches, and particularly in uh, in Philadelphia, uh, but also uh, in, uh, in Ephesus, or at least speaking with the bishop of Ephesus. But what these letters really reveal is a church that is is experiencing the first attack of Gnosticism or Docetism, whatever it was at that point. You have to define Docetism. Yes. What is that? Yes. Well, Docetism uh, from the Greek uh, dokeo uh, seems, it seems like, was the belief that Jesus was not physically a a human being like the rest of us were. He was much more divine than he was human. In fact, uh, the whole docetic and Gnostic concept had a very negative view of physicality. Mm-hmm. And it only seemed to have a body, but he didn't really have a human fleshly That's right. He was body. more like an angel or a, or a ghost or a mm-hmm. spirit. And uh, so Ignatius is writing against that. And Ignatius has an uphill battle because there are now no more eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. And so when the eyewitnesses disappear, the written word becomes the new witness. And we're in this period where the, bio, where the New Testament is becoming canonized. It's being collected together. Uh, authoritative figures like Ignatius are writing um, letters, not eyewitnesses, but they're letters being written that are now becoming the secondary authority of the church. I want to ask you just at that point, because you bring up a very interesting point about the canon of the New Testament. Uh, the best uh, argument or statement I have heard about canon formation came from uh, Joachim Jeremias, who was a great New Testament scholar of an earlier generation. And he makes this argument that the the apostles did not... Uh, of course, they appointed bishops. Uh, 
Ignatius was one of them, but they, they did not sort of set up a pipeline succession. This is the Catholic view, mm-hmm. but rather the living witness and word and voice really of the apostles is preserved in the scriptures. Yes. So in a way, the the canon of the New Testament serves the function that the apostles did when they were here on earth. Yeah, that's right. However, with the apostolic fathers, you're dealing with an age that has remembered the eyewitnesses and is now learning to trust them through the written word. So this is the this is the transition period where that mm. is happening. Very true what you say about the word, and it is a living word. But even from that time period, you have a bishop of Herapolis who says that I rather trusted the living word than what was written in books. Yeah. So you're dealing with a very interesting period in Christian history. Yeah. Now, some of the themes that uh, we find in Ignatius of Antioch, could you comment on some of those? I know one of them is unity. Yeah. He has this great line, which I always quote when I teach this period, where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. That's the first use of the word Catholic, I think, in Christian literature. That's right. So say a little bit about unity and some other themes that you see in Ignatius. Unity was a very important uh, concept for Ignatius. And, of course, in speaking about unity, he is recognizing the reality of division. And division became uh, uh, an important feature of second-century Christianity, both in its, uh, in its battles with uh, Judaism, which had rejected uh, the Messianic promises, and with uh, Greek philosophies, which were kind of, all of, both of which were kind of taking on bits and pieces of Christianity and, and merging and shaping those. And so this was, this was tearing up the church. We see this in 1 John, uh, if John mm-hmm. is writing those letters at about this time period. The church is really uh, experiencing division. And so the church is having to think, how do we find unity? Where is our unity? And unity was in Christ, but during Ignatius' tenure as bishop, uh, he began to promote the concept that uh, where the bishop is, there also is the church Mm -hmm. gathered together. And so that's where the Catholics begin to develop their concept of unity through the bishop. Whereas at that time, and even before that time, the unity was in the faithful acceptance of the apostolic witness. So we're here both, in a way, the culmination of the apostolic New Testament tradition Mm -hmm. and the opening up of what becomes the the 2,000-year Christian tradition, which we all have inherited, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, whatever branch of that we may... We we all have a, a patrimony, in a way, in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch and the Apostolic Fathers. That's right. Well, when you look at uh, at Catholic validation of the uh, not just the primacy of Rome, but the episcopate, they always begin uh, with Ignatius of Antioch, who said, uh, a church that doesn't have a bishop, elders, or deacons may not be called a church. So that threefold structure uh, was something that Ignatius verbalized uh, for for the Catholic Church, which is why during various periods of scholarship on uh, on Ignatius, uh, you often have Protestant scholars pitted against Catholic scholars uh, fighting for the validity of Ignatius' letters. And there's a whole corpus around Ignatius that many Protestants don't accept. Now, speak to the pastors and teachers who may be listening to the Beeson podcast today. Uh, what, what advice would you give to them about how to uh, make use of the apostolic fathers at, in a local church level or in a, 
even an adult uh, Sunday school kind of context. Yeah. Do you know, I have found that I do not use the apostolic so- uh, fathers in sermons. Yeah. <laughs> I stick to the word of God, and I think that's very important. However, um, you know, it's like a lot of the non-canonical literature that Eusebius in his church history writes about. He says that much of it is edifying to read, but it's not authoritative. Mm. And I think uh, if you really want to understand the the whole world and culture in which the gospel was initially preached and how it, it made this amazing move from being a Jewish sect to really undermining all the religions of its day and, and finally becoming the the dominant expression of belief in God. You really need to, to read the literature of that period and the apostolic fathers uh, breathe that air. It's not necessarily worth quoting in sermons, but for the pastor himself, it's good. And in particular, I always give to newly ordained pastors um, an excerpt from uh, Ignatius' letter to Polycarp, which Mm -hmm. is very much an older bishop writing to a younger bishop about how to pastor a church. So that's kind of really our first bit of literature that gives us an insight into what pastoring was like in the early church. I would also recommend The Martyrdom of Polycarp. We Mm. talked about a while ago because it's such a gripping account of faithfulness to Christ even unto death. And we live in a world today where Christians are frequently martyred for their faith. So we need to remember them. And and maybe reading Polycarp is a way to connect to the spirituality of martyrdom. Yes, that's right. Because, again, if there is one great heritage of the apostles, it is that they all died for their faith, perhaps save John. And the early Christians imitated the apostles, not just in preaching the gospel, which uh, can be something people enjoy, but in paying for the gospel with their lives, which is something that maybe we need to rediscover, at least in the West. That's a great point. And we're almost out of time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Before before we close, though, I wanted to ask you to say just a word about the Evangelical Quarterly. You are the co-editor of the Evangelical Quarterly, along with our friend Dr. I. Howard Marshall. Yes. So tell us about this journal, this periodical, and uh, what are you trying to do with it? Yes. Well, being the co-editor with Howard Marshall is kind of like being Chewbacca with Han Solo. So he is he is obviously the driving intellectual force. And uh, But the Evangelical Quarterly emerged uh, as an alternative venue for evangelicals in England uh, after World War II. And um, and along, in a sense, along the lines with uh, the formation of London Bible College, which again was attempting to be an evangelical alternative, an academic evangelical alternative to the liberalism of Oxbridge and the major universities. And interdenominational always. It is interdenominational. Mm-hmm. It, has a, it has a reformed sort of heritage but, uh, you know, we, we get uh, authors writing from all around the world from all kinds of traditions. But it is uh, broad church evangelicalism. And uh, there, there is an Old and a New Testament uh, section that Howard Marshall oversees, and then I, I oversee the, uh, the theology section and the historical sections. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a strong uh, venue for British and Australian evangelicals. And lately, more and more Americans are subscribing to it. And, uh, you know, it has, for me, it has great potential for the uh, the American field to get a, a transatlantic mm. dialogue going. And so if one wanted to subscribe to the Evangelical Quarterly, do you have a website? How, how would they do that? We do. Just go to the evangelicalquarterly.org, and you can uh, look up the information there. John Paul, what a wonderful conversation about your academic work, your pastoral work, your personal life. You're a wonderful representative of our school, and we love you and appreciate you, and so glad to have you with us today. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. 
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.